Howdy, I'm Brian, and welcome back to my Bible study podcast, From Hevel to Eternity. Today we're wrapping up the book of Zechariah, which is the penultimate book in our study through the Minor Prophets. For Zechariah, we've taken a little different approach. We did an overview episode, three different theme-based episodes, one application episode, and then this episode, which will kind of put a bow on top of our study with a little geek-out session. So the five themes that we've covered all show that God hears his people, and that he speaks into their needs. It talks about a judgment on the people, a call toward the people, an encouragement to the people, restoration for the people, and the coming Messiah of the people. The book of Zechariah is one of the longer minor prophet books and one of the more complex ones too, so there's a lot that can't be covered in just a few episodes. In this Geek Out episode, I want to jump into a few areas that we haven't really been able to discuss way down in the weeds. Among them are God's displeasure with past Israelite generations. Specifically, we're talking about Zechariah chapter 1, verses 2 through 5. We want to talk about the eight visions and oracles of Zechariah in the first half of the book. They're images that are kind of hard to put into context, so I want to talk through them briefly. I want to do some word studies from some words that I've found across the book that are kind of interesting. And then I want to talk about a new discovery, like press releases from yesterday type new, that's just really cool to dive into and talk about. I pray that this episode helps better equip us to read the book of Zechariah, that it provides some depth to some of the thematic type words found in the book, and that it just helps us worship Jesus better as we meditate on this amazing book that points us toward our Savior. So I want to start off the episode with a nerdy and an exciting new discovery. Press releases from the International Antiquities Authority within the last week indicate that archaeologists have confirmed a new discovery of scroll fragments found in a cave in the Judean desert. The scroll fragments have been confirmed to be verses from the books of Nahum and, what do you know, Zechariah. How fitting is the timing on this? A couple weeks after I publish a Dead Sea Scrolls episode and literally the day before I record my geek out session on the book of Zechariah, archaeologists announced the first biblical scroll fragment discoveries since the 1950s. And then among those fragments are verses from Zechariah. So I really want to get to a bunch of other stuff in this episode, but I might get caught up on this for a while because it's pretty exciting to me and it's still super new. So the cave that these scroll fragments were found in is actually called the Cave of Horrors, which sounds a little intense, but whose story is actually even more crazy than it sounds. So the cave is actually in Nahal Hever. It gets its Cave of Horrors name from the approximate 40 skeletons that were discovered there when the caves were first discovered in the 1950s. The cave itself is not easily accessible at all. It is on a mountain cliff face, and the entrance is actually 80 meters, or 260 feet, down the side of a vertical cliff. Seriously, you should Google Cave of Horrors Cliff Face, or the nearby Cave of Letters Cliff Face. It's like you're looking at the side of the Grand Canyon, and like two-thirds of the way up, this vertical cliff is a little cave opening. The only way for the team members to get there was to repel down the cliff face, 260 feet on a rope. The cave was used as a refuge for members of a Jewish community seeking asylum from the Roman Empire during a revolt, a Jewish revolt from Rome, 
during 132 to 134 AD. The Roman soldiers, they couldn't attack the cave itself, and instead they set up a siege camp on the mountaintop. Most of the skeletons, they were actually of Jewish people who starved to death during this siege. In addition to scroll fragments, some additional really cool things were also discovered. A collection of coins that were actually minted by the Jewish rebels at that time. The coins inscriptions read, Year One for the Redemption of Israel. There was also a 6,000 year old skeleton of a child who was found buried at the site. And another nearby cave included a fully intact woven basket dating back 10,500 years. That makes it the oldest woven basket ever discovered in this type of shape. So the scroll fragments date to the 1st century BCE, but they weren't transported to the caves until probably the 1st century AD during the revolt. It means that the scrolls, they were actually a century old before they were ever transported. The scrolls were written in Greek, with the only Paleo-Hebrew being the word for God, which is pretty normal for that time period since Greek would have been the primary language. But with the Hebrew scholars, they would have wanted to keep reverence for the name of God itself, and so they kept that in the original language. Where things get really interesting from a geek out and a word study perspective is that Zechariah chapter 8 verses 16 and 17 in the scroll, they have a one word difference that is worth noting. Zechariah 8 verses 16 and 17 say in our Bibles, These are the things that you shall do. Speak every man the truth with his neighbor. Execute the judgment of truth and peace in your gates. And let none of you devise evil in your hearts against his neighbor. And love no false oath, for all these are things that I hate, says Yahweh. According to the Jerusalem Post, the newly found scrolls, they start that, those verses. These are the things that you are to do. Speak the truth to one another, render true and perfect justice in your streets. So the fragment from the Cave of Horrors uses the word streets instead of the word gates. The difference is small, but according to scholars, this is the first time that they've ever seen that word used. I'll put the links to some stories about these discoveries in the podcast notes section, but it's all really new and it's all pretty cool, so I wanted to cover it here. Yahweh was very displeased with your fathers. Therefore tell them, thus says Yahweh of armies, return to me, says Yahweh of armies, and I will return to you, says Yahweh of armies. Don't be like your fathers, to whom the former prophets proclaimed, saying, thus says Yahweh of armies, return now from your evil ways and from your evil doings. But they did not hear nor listen to me, says Yahweh. Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? Zechariah chapter 1, verses 2 through 5. So we touched a bunch on the theme of God's judgment on the nations surrounding Israel and on the future enemies of God's people. But we didn't touch much on God's reminder of past judgments against the unrepentant Israelites. So here at the start of chapter 1, we see that it is a reminder right from the start and that reminder would have underlined the consequences of not turning back to God. The King James translation of verse 2 is, The Lord hath been sore displeased with your fathers. The CSB says, The Lord was extremely angry with your ancestors. And if you remember who these ancestors were, the ancestors of these Israelites were the ones who ran from God, 
received the covenant curses, and they were sent into exile in Babylon. And then in verse 5, your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? So yeah, it's a rhetorical question, but the answer is also a grim reminder. Remember that these are the first Israelites to return to the promised land since the exile. Their fathers probably were the generation who died and were buried in a foreign land, not in the promised land. So the book of Zechariah is made a little confusing by what ends up adding up to eight visions, all of which occur in the first half of the book. I'm not going to be able to go deep into the full meaning of all of the visions here, but I can at least provide an overview of them. If you're looking for a little more detail, then I recommend a commentary like the McComsky Commentary on the Minor Prophets, a study Bible like the ESV Study Bible, or an overview like Jason DeRoche's Overview Lectures on the Twelve Minor Prophets. I pulled information from all three of those for the following overview. So the first vision is in chapter 1, verses 1 through 117. This vision is of writers reporting peace on earth and the Lord as king in Zion. In this vision, you get this image of a horseman leading other horses and horsemen. The first rider who stands among myrtle trees is identified as the angel of the Lord. And he reports that they have patrolled around the earth and they're reporting back that the earth is at peace which is a Hebrew word that can also mean undisturbed. It's the, this future vision of peace and of the Lord reigning in Jerusalem. It concludes with the statements, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built in it, says Yahweh of armies, and a line shall be stretched forth over Jerusalem. Proclaim further, saying, Thus says Yahweh of armies, my cities will again overflow with prosperity, and Yahweh will again comfort Zion, and again choose Jerusalem. The second vision is in the second half of chapter 1, verses 18 through 21. So this vision is of four horns that scattered Jerusalem, and of four craftsmen who will cast down those horns. It is a word about the nations that are enemies of Israel being taken down. The four horns, they're thought to represent specific nations by some people. Some people, like Ryrie, identify them with the nations of Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, and Medo-Persia. Others, like MacArthur, they seem to lean toward identifying them with world empires of Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. So the language seems similar to Daniel chapter 7, and people tend to associate the four beasts there with the four horns here in Zechariah chapter 1. So interestingly enough, the horns in Zechariah, they're never associated with an animal. And the number four is used in the Old Testament in association with each of the points of the compass. McComsky notes that this seems to give a sense of extensiveness and comprehensiveness. It doesn't really require us to search out four specific nations. It's probably referring to all of the nations that go against Israel. All the nations that go against God's people. Either way, and whoever the horns might represent, the idea is of God's people now being fully freed from countries and nations that were previously their enemies, that the conquerors and oppressors would themselves be conquered. The third vision is all a chapter two. This vision is of Jerusalem no longer having the walls around it that are traditionally associated with its city limits. 
So there's this man with a measuring line who steps in, and the Bible says to measure Jerusalem to see what its breadth and what is its length. The idea of people from the nations streaming into Jerusalem also shows up in this vision. And because of that, it makes sense that the ancient city limits of Jerusalem they wouldn't be big enough to hold all of God's people celebrating him. So I don't think it's coincidence that in Revelation 21, when speaking about the new Jerusalem, the Apostle John notes that the angel who spoke with me had for a measure a golden reed to measure the city, its gates, and its walls. The city lies foursquare, and its length is as great as its breadth. And so in verses 15 and 16 of Revelation 21, John describes an angel who had a measuring rod also. And then the rest of the chapter goes on to describe the size and beauty and majesty of the new Jerusalem. The fourth vision is chapter 3. And here we see the high priest Joshua being washed clean of his unclean robes and then clothed in clean garments. Here we also get that statement about the perfect cornerstone the servant of the Lord, the righteous branch, who would be the means of restoration for the people. Jason DeRoche notes that the branch would be victorious, and that here we get the means for kingdom restoration. The fifth vision is all of chapter 4. It is a vision of a gold lampstand and of olive trees. This chapter really hits on the power of the Holy Spirit to empower God's people. Verse 6 contains the awesome quote, Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says Yahweh of armies. Verses 12 through 14 contain this really cool little dialogue also. I asked him the second time, What are these two olive branches, which are beside the two golden sprouts, that pour the golden oil out of themselves? He answered me, Don't you know what these are, I said? No, my lord. Then he said, These are the two anointed ones who stand by the Lord of the whole earth. So we have the Lord and then two anointed ones standing beside him. I'm not sure what the two anointed olive trees who would do the work of the Lord here are specifically. Some people speculate that it was Governor Zerubbabel and the high priest Joshua. Though I'm not sure that the governor would have been considered anointed, even if he was from the Davidic line. Either way, Makomsky notes that the vision's single thrust is that the people will complete the building of the temple. But I think it's just a cool little image that we get here at the end of chapter 4. The sixth vision is chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. This vision is of a flying scroll. God's purpose for this flying scroll is outlined in verse 4. I will cause it to go out, says Yahweh of armies, and it will enter into the house of the thief, and enter into the house of him who swears falsely by my name, and it will remain in the midst of his house, and will destroy it with its timber and its stones. So the scroll is going to go against the false prophets, the bad shepherds, the thieves, those who use the Lord's name but who are really not seeking him. These people will be met with destruction. The seventh vision is chapter 5, verses 5 through 11. This vision is kind of bizarre, even for Zechariah. It's of a woman sitting in a basket, and then there are these wings that sprout out and carry the basket above the earth. The purpose of the vision is an image of the iniquity and wickedness of God's people being removed. But again, if you read it, it is a pretty bizarre picture that's being painted here. The eighth vision is chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. 
It's the final vision of these four chariots. The visions sort of come full circle here, because just as with the first vision, this vision also includes horses and a patrol of the Lord traversing the globe and then reporting peace on earth and the Lord ruling over all. So I know that was a really high-level overview and it was really rapid-fire, but I hope that it helped to clarify some questions you might have as you've read through these confusing passages. So, some mini Hebrew word studies that come out of the vocabulary of the book of Zechariah. It includes my favorite Hebrew word, Shema, and that shows up eight times in the book. It starts in verse 1-4, where the Lord declares that the Israelites' ancestors, they had not Shema'd the Lord. They had not listened. And if you recall that, that word means to hear in a way that takes in what is being said, that meditates on it, and then transforms the hearer in some way. If you shema the word of the Lord, then it's usually associated with good things and with blessings. But as in Zechariah 1.4, listening, hearing, processing the word of the Lord, or not shemaing, it can have disastrous consequences. In Zechariah, shema is also paired with another Hebrew word, kashab. Kashab often gets translated as pay attention, heed, or incline your ears. It's kind of a prerequisite to Shema. As any parent can attest, you have to pay attention before you can hear in any transformative way. Kashab shows up twice in the book, and both verses also contain the word Shema in them. Zamam is another interesting Hebrew word. It is translated purposed or determined. It carries a meaning of thinking through or devising. Maybe plotting is a word that gives it a deeper meaning. It shows up three times in the book, and an example is Zechariah 1.6. Just as Yahweh of armies determined to do to us according to our ways and according to our practices, so he has dealt with us. The Hebrew word rachim shows up twice in chapter 1 alone. It is translated as mercy or compassion, and it references this deep, affectionate love. In Zechariah, it is the loving mercy of the Lord. In chapter 1, verse 12, we see the Lord is asked, How long will you withhold your mercy from Jerusalem? And then later in that same passage, in verse 16, we see that the Lord has returned to Jerusalem with his mercy. And so it's meant to be this powerful, deep, and tender answer to that question that arises in verse 12. Be on the lookout for these words as you read through Zechariah, and take note of the fuller meaning of the Hebrew that comes behind them. Just as every other book of the Bible, the book of Zechariah points forward to Jesus. In Zechariah 3.8, the Lord declares to Joshua the high priest, Behold, I will bring forth my servant, the branch. It is a capital B branch. And we talked in the Messiah theme episode about how Jesus is this branch. The Hebrew word that gets translated as branch is samach. And it only shows up 12 times in the entire Bible. And at least five of those times are messianic in nature, speaking directly of the Messiah or of the environment the Messiah will create. Isaiah 4.2, Jeremiah 23.5, Jeremiah 33.15, and then two verses right here. The end of Zechariah 3.8 and Zechariah 6, verses 12 through 13. 
I'm going to read all of them together in that order because they paint a beautiful portrait, and that is, I think, a fitting place to end our study on the book of Zechariah. In that day, Yahweh's branch will be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land will be the beauty and glory of the survivors of Israel. Behold, the days come, says Yahweh, that I will raise to David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, and at that time, will I cause a branch of righteousness to grow up to David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. Behold, I will bring forth my servant the branch. Thus says Yahweh of armies, Behold the man whose name is the branch, and he shall grow up out of this place, and he shall build the temple of Yahweh. Even he shall build the temple of Yahweh, and he shall bear the glory, and shall sit and rule on his throne, and he shall be a priest on this throne, and the council of peace shall be between them both. So thanks for listening. Next week we'll do two episodes on the book of Malachi, wrapping up our minor prophet study in the process. Unless otherwise noted, all Bible verses were from the World English Bible Translation, which is in the public domain. Until next time, I love y'all.